Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read two verses. The first one is verse 10. It says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth, in earth, as it is in heaven. And then we're going to jump to the end of the chapter and read verse 33, where it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And one more verse from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. We're hearing some rustling, so I'll wait a moment. That's the advantage of a, of a paper Bible over an electronic Bible. I can tell if you're there or not. Can't hear it on an iPad. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 17 says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Bless the Lord. Brother Paul, you probably know that as a song. We used to sing that when I was a kid. But I want to preach for just a little while this morning. I didn't, we didn't get home from the airport till about 2 a.m. So if I don't make some sense, you'll have to be merciful. But I want to preach just for a little while this morning about the king and his kingdom. The king and his kingdom. Bless the Lord. The word of the Lord tells us in more than one place that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. That he is the Lord of lords and that there is no kingdom like his kingdom. Amen. And we we need to understand sometimes and stop and think about what that means. We do not live under a king in this country and I'm in some ways glad for that. A good king would be okay, but history records probably more bad kings than good kings. But a king is not democratically elected. A king is not put on the throne by the the popular vote of the people, but whether it's a hereditary throne or whether it's a throne that's been taken by force, when a king sits upon a throne, he has all the power and all the authority. He is not subject to a senate or a house of representatives, or whatever particular form of government you want to consider. But his word is law. And the life of every subject in his kingdom is in his hands. And if you look at history, you will see evidence of that, of of men who were wicked, who, who took the lives of many people because of the fact that there was no accountability. They were simply the king. They had all the power and all the authority. And when you study history, whether you look at Bible history or secular history, you will see that kingdoms came and kingdoms went. That for one reason or another, a nation changed. And when you look at geography, you see that boundaries and borders changed throughout history. This kingdom had a certain area and then it was replaced by another kingdom which had a certain area. And as you go through history, all the, 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 the lines change. And even today, the borders and boundaries of countries are still changing from time to time. But kingdoms came and kingdoms went. And if you look into the book of Daniel, you will see there was a king whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. And he was the king of Babylon. And at that time, Babylon was the world power. The kingdom was vast. It covered a huge amount of territory. And Nebuchadnezzar was a king. And in fact, when you read between the lines with some of these ancient kingdoms, those kings sort of considered themselves to be a little bit of God and a little bit of king as well. They were willing to accept and sometimes even demand worship from their subjects. And Nebuchadnezzar was that kind of a king. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream one night. And in that dream, he saw an image like a statue. 
and that statue had a head of gold and as you went down that statue's body we got down to the, the torso there was or the chest there was silver and then went further down and there was was brass and then down to iron and down to clay and and in in his dream he saw he saw uh, that vision that that image but then he saw a stone come that the bible says the stone was made without hands which is significant because it speaks of the identity of that stone and that stone came and it, it, it smashed into that image. That image was destroyed. And I'm just paraphrasing. You can read the, the fullness of the detail yourself. But, and that stone grew and became a kingdom that filled the whole earth. And Daniel, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar woke up in the morning and he was troubled by his dream. Because he knew that it had significance. It wasn't just a random dream that sometimes we have. And you wake up in the morning and you think, well, that was a crazy dream. But his dream had significance. And he called in his magicians and his advisors and, and wanted them to be able to, to tell him not only the dream but also the interpretation. And nobody was able to do that and he was getting ready to kill them all. But there was a young man by the name of Daniel who was a godly young man. And when he had the opportunity, he came in before the king and he gave the king the interpretation of that dream. And he said, that, he said King, you are that head of gold. And he, he went down that image and he began to speak of how one kingdom would replace another. And when you study history, you see that that is true, that Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon was replaced by the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And then after that, the Greek empire. And these things were written before all that happened, which shows us that God is powerful and that his word is prophetic and he's accurate. And finally, he said that when that stone came, that it would, it would be greater than all of those kingdoms, that it would fill the whole earth. And we know that that speaks to us of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen. But in the natural, kingdoms came and kingdoms went. But not so in the kingdom of God. To be a part of a kingdom means that you are subject to the rule of a king. That when the king speaks, that you obey. That the king's pleasure is the reason that you live. If you worked in a palace, trust me, your number one priority was to keep the king happy. An unhappy king is a dangerous king. A king who at just having a bad day can have your head cut off is somebody that you want to keep happy. He would probably, the king's upset today, I'd be looking to get out of the palace and go somewhere else. Because that was the kind of power and authority that kings had. And we need to understand that if we this morning are going to consider ourselves to be a part of the kingdom of God, then that means that our lives are subject to Him. That means that when He speaks, we hear and obey. That means that the things that please God are the things that please us. The things that do not please God are things that we want nothing to do with because He is the King of all kings. And Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged to Daniel that that kingdom was the greatest kingdom, that it was an everlasting kingdom, and that there was never going to be a kingdom like it. And even after that, when the next king came in, he acknowledged the same thing. He said, he said, he said your God is the God of gods. When Daniel was kept miraculously, and there's a lot of history there that I'm not taking the time for this morning. But we have to understand that if we are in the kingdom of God, that there are both privileges and obligations. There are privileges and obligations, just like there are in any natural kingdom or country. If you are an Australian citizen, there are privileges that come with that. 
There's things like health care and education and various other things that we can talk about, but there are also obligations. There are laws of the land. There are things that are required of us. There are things that we are expected to submit ourselves to, whether we like it or not. There are a lot of examples we could use. We could talk about simple things like speed limits. We could talk about more complicated things like taxation. But we are required, if we want the benefits, we must keep the obligations. If we want to have the good things of the kingdom that we live in, we must also keep the word of the king. And when you travel, and I've done a bit of that, often when you're flying into a particular country on that airplane as they pass out the, the paperwork that you have to fill out, they will make an announcement. They will say to all passengers, it is important that you understand that the nation of fill in the blank. For me, the most common one has been Indonesia. And they will say the nation of Indonesia has very strict laws about, and it might be narcotics, it might be plant material, it might be one thing or another, but they warn you that if you plan on landing in that country and if you plan on leaving the airport and going out and participating in that society, that there are rules. There are th and unfortunately, there are still people today that try to get around those rules. Some get away with it and some don't. But there are obligations and there are privileges if we are going to be in the kingdom of God. Because, you see, this kingdom is like no other kingdom. This kingdom, no, no one is going to look back in history and say, well, that's where the kingdom of God came to an end. Because the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's not a kingdom. You cannot look on Google Maps and find the kingdom of God. You can Google just about any other country you want to and see the, bo the borders and the boundaries. But if you Google the kingdom of God on Google Maps, it will not show you. I'll be interested, actually. I might try that when I get home. But I do not believe it will show you a map because it's not a physical thing. When we move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, it's not a physical location, but rather is a spiritual transformation. We are changed spiritually. We still live in Australia or wherever country we happen to live, but we become the citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We, we, we make a decision that I will submit my will and I will subject myself to the king of kings. Why do I want to do that? Because there are benefits. There are privileges. There are things that God offers us that no other kingdom can offer you. There are things that God can do in our lives that nobody else can do, that no government, that no amount of money, that no amount of power and authority can do what Jesus can do. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. You may have an illness in your body. You can travel to any country in the world, but they may not be able to treat that, but Jesus can. Your family may be falling apart, and it doesn't really matter what country you live in. They're not going to be able to fix that. But Jesus can. You may have an addiction that you can't break, and we could have people stand and testify about that this morning. And it doesn't matter whether you're in Africa or Europe or North America or Asia. None of the location will not break your addiction. But you step out of the kingdom of sin and into the kingdom of God, and He has the power to break addiction, to put families back together, to heal our bodies, to turn our lives around. You can change kingdoms without even moving house. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. I want the benefits. The Scripture tells us to, to forget not all His benefits. 
Why does it remind us of that? Because people think about walking away from God. And there is a reminder, if you're going to walk away from God, you need to understand what it is that you're leaving behind. You need to understand that He has done so much for us. And if you walk away from Him, for whatever reason, you're going to lose all of that. So don't forget the benefits of being in the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We read in Matthew... And what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. That part of that prayer is to pray that the kingdom of the Lord would come and that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we've already established that the kingdom of God is not a physical location. So where is it? If somebody says, where is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God exists anywhere that there is somebody that is submitted to and has obeyed the word of God. It's, it's in every country just about in the earth. And it's going to be, at the end of time, it's going to be the kingdom that fills the whole earth. Amen. That's why the Bible tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That means that that kingdom comes before all other kingdoms. You see, there's a whole lot of... I don't know how many countries there are in the world. I think it's somewhere between two and 300. But there's really only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness or sin. You don't like the word darkness if you're uncomfortable with that i'm sorry it's in the bible but but you're either in the kingdom of god or you're in the kingdom of sin that there's no there's no holding point in the middle there's no switzerland there's no neutral ground you're either under the king of kings or you're under the king of darkness that's what the bible tells us it doesn't matter what your ethnicity might be or what your mother tongue might be or what your family's heritage might be whatever culture you come from and at the meetings we had during the week they had booths set up at the end of the hall with people sitting them translating as people were speaking there was one live interpreter standing there they're all alive that was a good thing but there was one person standing next to the speaker but then in the booths there were three or four other people interpreting for people wearing headphones because we all come from different places speak different languages i heard some languages i've never heard before i didn't have the headphones but they rotated the people that were interpreting But it doesn't matter what your mother tongue is. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're not. It doesn't matter. There are are some people here that were born in countries that don't exist anymore. That there's been government decisions or there's been conflicts and boundaries have changed and countries have been divided and and all kinds of things take place. That's the work of men. You know, if, if they take Australia and, as some people would like to do, cut Western Australia off and make it its own country, I think that's a little crazy, but... There are some people that would like to that. If they change this state into a nation, it's not going to change what spiritual kingdom you belong to. Because that's just a physical thing. That will come and that will go. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham sojourned, which is an English word we don't use much, but it basically means he passed some time. He stayed in a place for a while. He was not a resident there, but he, he sojourned through the land looking for a city, looking for a kingdom, looking for something that was made by God. And we need to understand this morning that as the old hymn says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's why in the same chapter in Matthew 6, it says that we ought to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. 
not on earth. What does that mean? You see, we read these things sometimes and we say, oh, amen, praise the Lord, but we haven't got a clue what it means. How do you lay up treasure? Is there a bank somewhere? Where is the bank of heaven? Downtown, in the city, St. George's Terrace, Bank West, the NAB, and the bank of heaven. Be good interest. But there is no physical place where you can invest in the bank of heaven or invest in the kingdom of heaven, but rather it's talking about the things that matter to us. The way we spend our time, the way we spend our energy, even the way we spend our resources. The things that we are focused upon that are most important to us. If they have some kind of an eternal benefit and value, then you're laying up treasure in heaven. But if you're focused on things that are going to pass away, that are going to rust and become corrupted, then that's a waste of your time. We have to do all the natural things. We've got to have jobs and houses and cars, but they're all just, they're all just pieces of a process of life. But what matters most to us should be the things that are of eternal value, the things that matter to God, that matter to the king, need to matter to his subjects. When the things that I prioritize are the things that the word of God teaches me to prioritize, I'm investing in eternity. I'm laying up treasures where nobody can see them and a lot of people don't understand because they don't realize the kingdom that we belong to. And we need to be reminded sometimes if we believe that we are in the kingdom of heaven, why do we spend so much time focusing on this earthly kingdom? Why do we, why do we invest so much of our energies and our concerns into the things that are temporal when they will pass away and be gone like everything else? Amen. You, know, you look at investments, and I'm not against investments, but, but you watch the financial cycles, you know, markets go up, and everybody gets excited, and then the markets come down, and everybody starts to panic because there's a confidence and a trust in those things. But we have to be careful. That's not where our identity is. You know, there needs to be something about us that people recognize is different. You, know, you don't need to wear a T-shirt that says, I'm a member of the kingdom of God or a hat, or carry around a card, says, hi, my name's Simon, I'm from the kingdom of God. They'll probably lock me up if I do that. But there needs to be something about us that is different. If we're investing in things that are eternal, there needs to be something about us. That's why Abraham was different. Abraham's priorities were different. When people saw Abraham and they watched what Abraham did, he made decisions a different way to the people around about him. There needs to be something about who we are and the way we live that is different if we belong to the King of Kings. You know, when I go to Indonesia, when I'm particularly in the more remote places in Indonesia, I mean, you go to the big cities like Bali and Jakarta, they have a lot of international travelers, but you go into some of the more remote areas, I don't have to tell anybody there that I'm not Indonesian. Not once have I been mistaken for being Indonesian. Not once. I'm a lot taller than most of them. I'm an awful lot heavier than most of them. I don't speak, this, I speak a little bit of the language that they speak, but I'm certainly not fluent. And they recognize that straight away. Now, that's very easy in the natural, but there needs to be something about us that when people see us that they recognize that there is something different about you. Saying, you know, when, I, when I go to Indonesia, lots of little Indonesians want to have their photo taken with me because they think it's a novelty to have your photo taken with the giant white man. It's like 
It's like being at a freak show. You know, everybody wants to have your photo taken with this strange person. I go into airports and some of those remote places, and I have complete strangers offering me their chair. I was in, in Kupang, I think it was, in West Timor, and walking through the airport trying to find somewhere to sit down. And this man who I have never met before said, Boss, boss. I don't know they call me boss because I'm big. He said, sit down. I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's okay because they just they see something that's different. It's a bit of a novelty. Now, I'm not suggesting that when you go to the shopping center that people will want to take their picture with you because you're a Christian. It's not likely to happen. But there does need to be something about us. There needs to be something about us because of the way we live, because of where we put our priorities and where we invest our time and our treasure. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that God is number one. What is the first commandment in both the Old and the New Testaments? God is one and that we must love him with everything that we have, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our soul. Do you think that would be visible in somebody's life if that's been demonstrated? If I'm doing everything I can to love God with every part of me, do you think that's going to be visible? I imagine it would be. I imagine there needs to be something about us that reflects that kind of a commitment to the things of God. If you read Matthew 13, we won't read all of the chapter today for the sake of time, but in Matthew chapter 13, there are a lot of parables or examples that Jesus gave about what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God was like. He gave that well-known parable of the sower and the seed of how the man took, out, took a bag of seed and began to sow it the old-fashioned way just by hand-casting that seed in the field and the different kinds of soil that that seed landed upon and the different results of that kind of soil. And, and I want to make something very clear. You've heard me say this before, but you are not predetermined to be what kind of soil you are. In the parable that Jesus gave, there were four kinds of soil. There was good ground, stony ground, the, the hard ground. On the, on the, where am I going here? See, I told you I was tired. Good <laughs> Let me get this from the scripture. might be a good idea. Bless the Lord. Okay, in Matthew 13, in about verse 20, it says, He that received the seed into stony places, and there was thorny ground. That was the one you had forgotten one of them. But each of these four types of ground brought forth a different outcome. One, the, the seed was just, it didn't get a chance to become into the earth and was taken away and another it grew up but it was choked by thorns and another it grew up but because of the stones it couldn't get a good root structure and when the heat came it was it shriveled and and one quarter of the seed fell on ground that was fruitful there is a belief that you cannot choose who you are now there there is a belief that says that you know your spiritual destiny is predestined or in other words God already knows if you're going to be saved or lost, therefore it's completely out of your hands. That is not biblically accurate. God does already know simply by virtue of the fact that he cannot not know. He's God. He knows everything. But he still leaves the power of choice in your hands and in mine. And so I have the choice this morning. Will I be good soil or will I be stony soil? Will I be the hard ground or will I be the thorny ground? I can choose. Now, you might be one of those four already. But you don't have to stay that way. You recognize that you've got a hard heart. You can do something about that. 
If you recognize that there are thorns or weeds or things that shouldn't be in your soil, you can do something about that. You can choose to change the kind of soil that you are and the kind of kingdom that you're going to grow in. That is the power of choice. Amen. That is where faith comes in. We can choose to believe the Word of God. It is not some kind of eternal lottery system. You know, I think in some countries in, in years gone by, they had some kind of thing with when it came to people wanting to get permanent residency of a country where there was a lottery system where people's names came out. It's not like that in the kingdom of God. There's not some giant powerball machine in heaven that God is spinning around. And he's saying, here come the ball comes down the pipe, or whatever it is, I haven't seen that stuff for a long time. But, oh, look, Moses, you get to be in the kingdom of God. And then it spins again. And, oh, sorry, Chi you missed out. It's not like that. I always pick on Chi He loves me. It's not like that. The Bible says, whosoever will, let him come under the water of life and drink freely. If you will, you can. It's that simple. And it doesn't matter how messed up you are. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning. But it doesn't matter how messed up your life is or how hopeless and how broken you think it is. If you want to, he can turn your life around. If you will let his word get into your heart and begin to have life, he can bring forth things you did not think were possible. Too often we look around a church and we see all these well-dressed people that seem to have perfect lives and we forget what we were. And I'm glad we look better than we used to. That's a testimony of what God's done for us. But we, are, we can very easily think it's an illusion to think that this church is full of good people and that we have a church for a place for good people to come. That's not true. Otherwise we should all leave immediately before the good person police come. Because we'd all fail. Church is not a place where good people come. Church is a place where broken people come. Where people that are in sin and bondage and heartache and addiction and, and every other kind of illness or disease come because they need something from God. Somebody told them, you know, there is a kingdom. There is a place that you can become a part of. But what do I have to do? It's not about what you do. It's about what he's done. And if you will come and obey the word of God, you can be a part of the kingdom of God and have the benefits of that. What are the benefits of the kingdom of God? It's a good question. The biggest benefit, or the, the, the big one, I guess, that most people think about is eternity. And eternity is pretty big. It's worth thinking about. The Bible lets us know that when this life comes to an end, that there are two eternal destinations, just like there's two kingdoms. There's not a whole list of options. I'm sorry if you've come from an orthodox background. There's no such a place as purgatory. There's no halfway house. Put it as bluntly as I can, there's heaven and there's hell. And if we get into the kingdom of God in this life, we will be in the kingdom of God in the next life. And the reverse happens as well. So the first benefit above all else is the salvation of our souls of the fact that Jesus Christ will wash our sins away, that he will fill us with his spirit, and that when he returns, that we will go to be with him forever. Now, some people think that's a lot of garbage. Some people ridicule Christianity and say that's pie in the sky when you die. But the thing is, if the Bible promises me this, I'm going to trust the word of God. Why do I trust the word of God? Because I've experienced the other benefits here and now. Amen. In this life, I've seen too many people have their lives turned around. 
I've seen too many people restored from broken lives. I've seen too many people healed from sickness. Too many people's families put back together. Too many young people come from messed up, hopeless lives to live in a godly and a victorious life to believe anything else. Hallelujah. Forget not his benefits. Hallelujah. He is my king. I don't know about you this morning, but he is my king. I want to live in his kingdom. I want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. I've seen too many people's lives turned around to believe that it's not real. Now, I can say that without anything to back it up. The good thing is what I say is backed up from the word of God. What I'm saying is what's written. And what's written, I've seen. And so when I put that all together, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When I hear the Word of God and I believe it, I will see what God can do in my life and in your life as well. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Bless the Lord. You know, Chris, just to burst the bubble just a little bit, being a part of the kingdom of God is not hassle-free. It's not trouble-free. You have troubles just like other people do. You're going to have hard times. You're going to get phone calls from doctors like our friends at Trimbles with news that you were not ready for. But in the midst of those things, there is somebody we can turn to. You know, if you belong to a kingdom in the natural sense, how many people do you think actually get to talk to the king? How many people in Babylon do you think got to talk to Nebuchadnezzar? I don't know how big the population was. It must have been hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. It's a big kingdom when you look at the, the land mass that it spanned. How many of those hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of Babylonians got to speak to Nebuchadnezzar face to face? Not too many. His family probably, and even when you look into the culture back then, the queens didn't really get to talk to the king unless he summoned them. I'm not going down that road. That could get into trouble. But but nobody spoke to the king without an appointment. Nobody spoke to the king without his permission. You couldn't just pop in and have coffee with the king. He had security. He had guards. Many of those kings lived in paranoia because of attempts on their lives. They were, they were kept very well insulated from the people. They may have seen the king in a parade at a distance. They may have seen him on a horse leading an army when they come back from a victorious military campaign. But very, very, very few ever got to speak to the king. But in this kingdom, in the kingdom of God, everybody from little children to young people to adults to older people, there's not one of us that cannot lift our voices. And in just a moment, we have the attention of the king. In just a millisecond, he turns his face toward us and he hears our prayer and he hears our cry. And I don't know how he does it because there's millions of us. But there is never a cue. There is never a line. There is never a busy signal or a voicemail. You get direct access every time you call his name. Hallelujah. There is no king on this earth that can do that. There is no politician, no prime minister, no president, no dictator that can give every single subject access at every hour of every single day. But he can't. It doesn't matter how insignificant you perceive yourself to be. When you call on the name of Jesus, he will hear you in an instant. 
and he will respond to you as if you are the only living person there is. That's the kingdom I'm a part of. Hallelujah. And so when we do have those heartaches, when we do have those things that we're not expecting and not prepared for, I can call on his name. I can give it to him. I can take comfort from the Lord. I can find my refuge in him. I can find my shelter in the presence of my king. Does it mean that everything is going to be perfect just the way I want it? No, it doesn't. But I've got a king that's in control, that watches over every situation in my life. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. That's why Paul said, now unto the king eternal. No other king has ever been eternal but God. The unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. That means that anything else that anybody else worships is not wise. I'm not interested in serving a foolish God. I need a God that's wise. Bless the Lord. Let's go with me to John chapter 3. We have to be careful as Christians once we become a part of the kingdom of God that we maintain our status. That we maintain our status as residents of that kingdom. Too many people I know that profess to believe in God only visit the kingdom occasionally. We're not tourists, we're residents. You don't get a 30-day visa when you come into the kingdom of God. You need to belong. Amen. And when you go overseas, they give you that that, that visa, but if you stay longer than that, you're in trouble. And you go there, you've got to keep those terms and conditions, and then you've got to leave. But when you become a part of the kingdom of God, you will never be asked to leave. You can only leave if you're in a court. So let's get down to where it's really at today. How do I become a part of the kingdom of God? Talk about how awesome it is, and it's awesome. Talk about what God can do, and He can do anything. But in John chapter 3, the Bible tells us that Jesus had a meeting at night with a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a ruler, possibly a Pharisee. He met with Jesus under the cover of darkness because he was worried about his reputation. You know, as crazy as that seems, I've known plenty of people that were worried about their reputation coming to Jesus. What will my family say? What will they say at work if I become a Christian? Trust me, the benefits outweigh any of those things. Bless the Lord. And he came to Jesus by night, in verse 2, and he said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for nobody can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So it depends on how you want, what kind of a, a tone you want to read that in. He can either be acknowledging Jesus or he can be trying to, you know, be smooth and, and, you know, prepare the way. Say nice things so that Jesus will say nice things to him. It depends how you want to read that. But Jesus, being who he was, didn't mess around with too many social niceties. And in verse 3, it says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or we would say, Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, except a man be born again. Nicodemus says unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? It's a good question. Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, this is the first time in recorded history that anybody's ever used the expression born again. Today it's thrown around all over the place. 
But back then, nobody ever said you need to be born again. And so Jesus pulls out this expression, and Nicodemus is kind of like, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute, what does that mean? What does that mean? I mean he's, the only birth he's aware of is the birth when his, his mother had him as a baby, and he's thinking, how, how can that happen again? And obviously it can't. And in verse 7, Jesus answered again, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus says to this man, then you, you follow the conversation, and Jesus gives this Nicodemus a gentle rebuke because he's supposed to be a spiritual leader, but he doesn't have a lot of spiritual understanding because Jesus is talking to him about something that is spiritual. He's not talking about a physical new birth any more than he's talking about a physical kingdom. When he said, Nicodemus, if you're not born of water and spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He wasn't saying that when you get to a particular border in a particular country that the guards will not let you in. He wasn't talking about anything physical, but he was talking about spiritual. Talking about a spiritual kingdom. And Nicodemus went on his way and didn't really understand everything that was going on with that. But we see that in the, in the book of Acts, the second chapter, the next book along in your Bible, Acts is very significant in the New Testament. Not that it's any more important than any other scripture. Scripture is all of equal value. But we need to understand how the scripture goes together this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are gospels that record the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the things that he did. And they're not all identical. They record some things are recorded in one gospel that aren't recorded in another. Some one gospel might record more detail about a particular event. Another might just pass over it. But they're all the same thing. There wasn't a Jesus for Matthew and a Jesus for Mark and one for Luke and one for John. It's all about the same Jesus. And when you get to the end of those four Gospels and you get to the time when Jesus went to Calvary and died and was buried and rose again, they all come to a point where Jesus gives his church or his disciples instructions. And if you read them, you'll see that part of that instruction was to wait for the promise of the Father at the end of Luke chapter 24. And so when we hit the book of Acts, the acts or the actions of the apostles, we read what his disciples did with the instructions that they were given. There's no, there isn't a book of Acts for Matthew and another one for Mark, another one for Luke, another one for John, but it's like four lanes of traffic that all merge into one. All four of those gospels merge into the book of Acts. And the Lord gave them instruction to preach the gospel. In Luke, he said to preach that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name, beginning at Jerusalem. And so they did what they were told. They went to Jerusalem. They waited. They weren't really sure how all of this was going to happen, but they were gathered together and they were praying. And in Acts chapter 2, the Bible tells us that in this prayer meeting, there was about 120 people there in the upper room in Jerusalem. And while they were praying for this promise. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, you've seen people speaking in tongues and that's freaked you out, that's okay. That's a fairly normal reaction. But that's the promise that they were waiting for because when you read it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and sat on each of them. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So if this is the first time you've ever seen somebody speak in tongues and it's freaked you out, if you read on in that chapter, you'll find it had the exact same effect on the crowd that was there that day. They came down out of that room speaking languages they didn't know that they'd never learnt at school just by the power of the Spirit of God. And the crowd was saying, well, what are these? You know what happens when something's weird's going on? The crowd always gathers around. The crowd gathered and they were all discussing, what are these people? What's this nonsense? What's this? And some of them came to the conclusion that they'd been drinking very early and they got drunk. Trying to work it all out, but the Bible says that Peter stood up in verse 14. Peter stood up with the other 11 disciples. They all agreed with him. They were standing together. This means they supported what he said. And he began to take them. He began to give them a quick Bible study from the Old Testament into the New Testament. He said back in the book of Joel, in the Old Testament, God promised that the day would come when he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And he said, this that you see here today, that's what Joel was talking about then. He said, that promise that God gave the Old Testament prophet is what you're seeing today. All these people speaking in languages they've never learned by the power of the Spirit of God. He said, that's what Joel was promised. And that's what the Lord told us to wait for. And he, from that, he began to talk to them about the fact that Jesus, he began to talk about who Jesus was and what Jesus did when he went to the cross and the fact that he died for their sins. And Peter let them know with no doubt whatsoever that it was their sins that put him on the cross. And we need to understand this morning that it was my sin and it was your sin that put him on that cross as well. Amen. And when they realized, when their understanding was open, they began to put the pieces of the puzzle together. They said, well, if he died for us because we were sinners and his death was our responsibility, they said, what must we do? What can we do about that? Is it hopeless? Is it a lost cause? Am I too far gone? And that's a question that a lot of people still have today. Is my life too much of a mess? Is my situation too bad, too broken, too far, too much? And the answer that Peter gave them in verse 38 is the same answer that we would give you today. And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What did he say to Nicodemus? You've got to be born of the water. You've got, there's, there's water involved here, Nicodemus. You've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. And then Peter went on to say in the second part of that verse, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He said, what did he say to Nicodemus? Water and spirit. You need to be baptized. You need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. The, everything in the Scripture goes together like a puzzle. It all fits together. When Peter said that, he was referring back to what Jesus had said. Bless the Lord. He didn't say, some people say, oh, well, that was just for them. Well, the next verse, Peter said, the promise is to you, it's to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So if we believe that God is still calling people today, then the promise is for us. If we believe that God is still reaching for people today, then the promise is for us. What do I need to do to be a part of the kingdom of God? I need to be born again. I need to be born of the water and of the Spirit. I need to have my sins washed away in Jesus' name and to receive the Holy Ghost. When Peter said, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, he was standing, talking about something that they had just experienced themselves for the first time. 
And there's a lot of different ideas out there about receiving the Holy Ghost. Some people say, well, it's optional. Some people say it doesn't matter anymore. Some people say that you just get it automatically. When I believe in God, somehow it's automatically downloaded. There's a lot of interesting ideas, but none of them are supported by the Word of God. When people receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, when they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost in the book of Acts, they spoke in other tongues by the power of the Spirit of God. Amen. You want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. There's no other way. There's no other way. But I promise you this, there is no better kingdom to belong to. Nations come and nations go. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But you know, in every kingdom throughout history, there have been people in the kingdom of God, in those kingdoms. In Babylon, there was the young man named Daniel. When his time came, he was still in the next kingdom. There, there were others that God had reached in every kingdom throughout history. You look at Alexander the Great. You look at all the conquerors throughout the world. The kingdom of God has been there all the way through. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Stand with me this morning. Sister Stanker, if you would come, please. See, there are so many privileges to being in the kingdom of God, but there are also obligations. There's a life that we need to live. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians. He also wrote to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, and he gave a whole list of things. He said, don't you know that drunkards and, and people that are immoral and thieves and like, he said, these people won't enter the kingdom of God. He said, they, they can't come in. Their, their, their actions exclude themselves. Just like if you try to come through customs with something that you're not allowed to bring through customs. You know, when you, you come to customs, to immigration in any country, and you're in possession of something that they will not allow, you only have two choices. You either get rid of it, or you go back where you came from. There's no in-between. You, you, you come to that point of decision. Do I want to hang on to this, or do I want to go on? And that's exactly the same with our lives. When we come to Jesus, sometimes there are things we don't want to let go of. And sins, you know, let's be honest, some sin is enjoyable. That's why people are sinners, because sin has its pleasure. But when you come to the cross and you understand that he died for your sins and that he wants you to be a part of his kingdom, that he wants you to be his child, that he wants you to become a son of God, you come to a point where something has to give. Either I lay aside my old life and enter in, or I go back from whence I came. There's no other option. They're the only two options. And you may go back, and you may come back again to the cross, but the challenge is the same. The, the question remains the same. It doesn't matter how many times you come back, the question is still there. Will you lay aside? See, that's what repentance is. Repentance is simply when we come to Calvary and we recognize that we've got things in our lives that are sinful, that we're sinners. If we want to have that situation dealt with, we've got to be willing to lay it down at the feet of Jesus and allow Him to save our souls and to say, come in. That's the Lord. But sometimes, you know, if you are sick, you go to a doctor, the doctor says, well, you've got this condition and this is the process for you to be cured. But then you ignore that doctor's advice 
Come back in a week. Doctor, still got the problem. Did you do what I said? No, I didn't. Well, it's still the cure. Okay. Go away again. The medicine's too expensive. Doesn't taste nice. Come back in a week. Doctor, still got the same problem. In fact, it's getting worse. The doctor says, have you taken the medicine? No, I don't like it. Well, I don't have anything else to offer you. That's how it is with sin. There's only one cure. There's only one cure. That's why the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that washes away sin. No cleaning agent, no super chemical, no process, just the blood of Jesus. And if we want to be saved, if I want to enter into that kingdom, I've got to come. Jesus said, I'm the door. I said, I'm the only way in. He said, you come through me, you can enter into something that's beyond your wildest imagination. But there's only one door. So let's just bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.